0: Good morning Willowburn. <clears throat> I feel a little bit wired. I've got two wires on me today. So there was a pun in that, but that's okay if you didn't get it. Um, so three passages going to be looking at today. So if you want to prep your Bibles or your smartphones, um, Revelation 10 is the main passage, obviously, going through Revelation. Also going to be looking a bit at Psalm 18. So you'll want to have that. And Matthew... Five, I think it is. Let me just check. Yes, Matthew 5. So if you can sort of mark places in there, oh yeah. Craish Sunday school, things happening. So if you've got kids to take out, do that. Cool. So prep Bibles, Revelation 10, Matthew 5 and Psalm 18. Cool. By the way, good morning. again. no one actually said "Good morning back to me, I don't think. Good <laughs> Thanks. Good So yeah, it's good to be here. It's good to see some familiar faces and some not-so-familiar ones. Merv and Chris, and Claudette's back, yay. Jess is back, also yay. Good to have And Kate. Oh yeah, Kate's here. (laughs) Hey, Kate. Um, Yeah. So I'm a little nervous this morning because I've been a little sick during the week, and I did something that felt way too much like work during the week as well, building a truck house. So yeah, anyway, just feeling a little bit... um, I guess, nervous about this passage as well, because I've had a tough time sort of wrestling with it and trying to understand it and trying to see what's in there for us. So I hope you can give me a little bit of grace today. Looking at you, Merv. (laughs) Um, I'd like to quickly mention our guiding principles as we preach through Revelation. uh, We've been using four principles in preparing our messages. Uh, Number one, we want to do the words of the prophecy of Revelation. Number two, we want to rely on the help of the Spirit to learn and do the words of the prophecy. Number three, we want to not over-interpret, that is to say that something definitively means this and this alone, that would be over-interpreting. Nor do we want to under-interpret, which would be to shy away from um, part of a text or not preach it or not really delve into it because its practical impacts are uncomfortable or it's hard to understand. And finally, number four, we want to seek meanings for our understanding of Revelation from other parts of the Word. We want to see Revelation in the context of the whole Bible. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for the privilege to be here speaking your word to your people that are gathered here. Um, Please help me to be open to the leading of your Spirit. May the thoughts that I've prepared be ones that come straight from you, and when they're not, please take control of my tongue and my mind, and don't allow me to say anything that doesn't come straight from you. Give... Give me the words that will give the message that you have for your people here today. Amen. Okay, so you all know me. When I get up here, I ask questions and I expect responses. So intro questions. Two of them. Just shout out the answers. But the first one is, what is the most common question you are asked by people who aren't Christians about your faith? When you're talking to people that aren't Christians, whether they're friends, family members, workmates... You know, when you get the chance to talk to them about God, what's the most common question they ask you? Go. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Yeah. Ditto for that, says Ben. Anybody else? Got something different? The same? Yep. Anyone else? Nods all around the room. You don't get asked anything else. Why do you hate gay people? Why hate gay people? Yep. Yeah. Why do you believe in God? Yep flying spaghetti monster um why do you believe in a sky fairy cool all right well most of you hit on the one that i get asked most often by uni students and other people i talk to the most common question i get is the if there's a good god why is there evil and suffering in the world or some variation of that why doesn't he do something about it he can't be all good because he lets all this crap go on or he can't be all powerful because if he would he'd do something about it some variation of those so more on that later question number two what's your favorite book and you can't say the bible So, apart from the Bible, I know, Alan, that's the only book you ever read, but um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, apart from the Bible, what would be your second, your other favourite book? Pilgrim's Progress, says Merv, yes? I was going to say the same. Uh, Or The Holy War. The Holy War. I haven't read that one. Anybody else? It's it is other main books. What's yours, Taylor? (laughs) You and me. Connection. (laughs) That's my favourite book as well, Lord of the Rings. Anybody else? Frankenstein. Frankenstein. We should watch Gabe. <laughs> Anybody else? Claudette, what's yours? You read a lot. Uh, maybe the Harry, Potter series. Harry Potter, oh dear. We'll have to watch you too. Anyway. Okay, yeah, okay. Fair enough. All right, good, good. Well, obviously mine came out. I like The Lord of the Rings. Again, more on that later. Let's actually get into the real book now, the Word of God. So go to Revelation chapter 10, our passage for today. And you can either listen to me or you can read along yourself. I know which one I'd prefer to do, but you might be different. So Revelation chapter 10, 1 to 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in cloud with rainbow, with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout, like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel i had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, there will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Awesome. So that's the main passage for today. Just let me have a drink. So the most common question I get asked is some variation of if there's a good God or an all-powerful God, why doesn't he do anything about all the evil and suffering in the world? And there's a few different ways that I've tried to answer that um, with uni students. Um, One of the most obvious ways is go to Genesis and explain the problem of original sin and where the blame for what's wrong with the world really lies with the devil and us. That's an easy way and I've never reached anyone for Jesus with it because they have a problem with finding um, the Bible believable in that regard. They go, no, nah, that science has disproven all that Genesis stuff. It's not true. That's not how we got here. Load of, load of rubbish. So yeah, that could be a problem with their unbelief or it could be a problem that um, you know, they just don't want to um, investigate the truth of it. Could be a number of things. There's another way you can go at it. You can say um, Jesus was the solution to what's wrong with the world. You know, you can go to the cross and show them how God's in the process of redeeming the world through Jesus. Probably more apt because He, Jesus, deals with the direct problem that they have, the underlying problem that something is wrong with them, and that's why they see something wrong with the world as being a problem. Or you can go here. You can go to Revelation and you can point to a future reality and say that God is going to do something about the problem, just not yet. He's taking a period of grace and mercy to allow people to turn to him before he does something about it. And this passage in Revelation, Revelation 10, is a good proof text if you want to go with the last option. I've only tried it once and it kind of worked, so I don't know. More on that later. (laughs) So, this mighty angel in verse number one. Let's get to know him a bit. Look at your Bibles there. We're not told a name, so we don't know who he is. Some theologians have considered he may be Jesus or even God himself, but many more disagree with that and don't think he is. think he's just an angel. Uh, a few things to notice about him. He's called a mighty angel in verse 1. We've only ever seen one other person called a mighty angel in Revelation, and he's the one in chapter 5, verse 2, who asks in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals? And then the lamb comes and breaks the seals. This angel here also has a loud voice, like the roar of a lion in verse 3. Lions throughout the Bible are connected with majesty and royalty, usually associated with Jesus or God. So this could be the same angel, could be a different one, who knows, not really that important. But those things about him are interesting. Another thing, he's holding the little scroll, which is open in his hand. Where have we seen a scroll before? Obviously, I just mentioned it, the one that the lamb broke all the seals on, and we went through all the seals. Could this be the same scroll? Maybe, maybe not, we're not told. Um, it is open, which is what happens after you break the seals on a scroll, it's, it lays open. Um, but yeah, we're not told, we're at the same scroll. So another thing of interest about this angel, he's got a rainbow around his head in verse three. The other place we see a rainbow around the head of someone is the rainbow that encircles the throne of God himself in chapter four, verse three. John compares this angel's face to the sun. The last time he did that was way back in chapter one, where he first saw the risen King Jesus standing among the lampstands. Even the legs of this fellow as fiery pillars, they reference that references back to the children of Israel seeing the presence of God as a fiery pillar that guided them by night. So this passage is full of references to other parts of the Bible, which is good. Um, I don't believe this is Jesus or God. I think this is just an angel because um, there's a few things that are different or, or missing about this passage. When John first meets the Son of God standing among the lampstands, he falls on his face and worships him. That's his instant response. He recognises his Lord. He doesn't do that for this guy. Also, God, the Ancient of Days, um, the Alpha and Omega, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the returning King, all that, they are constantly referred to by titles or names. This fellow is just called an angel. So he's probably not Jesus. Why is that important? Because his identity establishes how much worth there is in what he says. Adrian's mentioned to us several times before that the weight of what someone says depends on who they are. If I say, oh, I've got this lovely foreign policy that will sort out all America's problems, nobody cares. But if Donald Trump says it, well, the media goes wild. (laughs) (laughs) Who you are has a lot of impact on what you say. So if this guy is Jesus or God, then what he says is really important, or if he's acting on their behalf, which is what I believe he's doing. He has some of the aspects, if you like, which are associated with the divinity, but that may be simply because he is acting as their ambassador. I get this, uh, yeah, my conclusion is that he's just an angel, indeed a very mighty one, and what he has to say is very important because he is acting on behalf of God. And as he plants one colossal foot on the land and another one on the sea, I get the idea of planting a flag, claiming somewhere. He's claiming back, in a sense, in the name of God, the earth, saying that God is finally coming back to reclaim his creation. Okay, move along to the seven thunders. When this awesome angel speaks, seven thunders come rolling out of heaven. He doesn't start the thunder, it's in response to what he says, if you see that there. John is about to write down what they said, so there's words in this thunder, um, but he's forbidden to by a voice from heaven. Thunder is used throughout scripture in association with the voice of God and with his judgment. There's a million different texts I could take you to, but the one I like the most is in Psalm 18. So I told you to flag that earlier, if you've got it somewhere. Start in verse 13. Psalm eighteen thirteen. It says, The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth were laid bare. At your, rebu- your rebuke, O Lord. At the blast from your nostrils. So there's a good imagery there. Um, the blast from God's nostrils. Thunder. Judgment. Smashing the enemies. Lots of bad stuff happens to bad people. Instead of it happening to good people, which is good. So um, thunder is associated with God's wrath, God's judgment, God's power. Have you ever been thundered at? Maybe you've got a parent that just roared at you once because you did something wrong. Maybe you have a friend who roared at you once for something you did that you shouldn't have done. Maybe your spouse has roared at you, has thundered at you. Mine hasn't. She can't speak that loud. But maybe yours have. It can be fairly scary. I vividly recall one time when we as a couple were thundered at by God himself. It was our wedding day. <laughs> Some of you were there and remember. I remember it vividly. We we're supposed to get married outside in the Japanese gardens at 2 p.m. It was a lovely sunny day. Me and the boys got there. We we're setting up in our suits and we were sweating, Whew, taking our jackets off. Don't know if we're going to get through this wedding. And then about 1.30... People started arriving, and it's all looking good. There was this whip crack of thunder. Bam! And it just rolled out. And I think it was about the longest 10 years of my life. (laughs) Okay, it was probably only about 10 seconds. But it felt like it. I was like, I knew it was going to rain. I told her it was going to rain. Why did we have to have it outside? And this thunder just seemed to go on and on and on, just crushing me to the ground. (laughs) Everything about me was just, no, I can't deal with this. Why does it have to be like this? I imagine that is the kind of power in the voice of God, the thunder that came from heaven. Obviously, 10 minutes later, the cloud came, it rained, and we had to go inside. Um, That's how I imagine these seven thunders. Incredibly loud, incredibly sudden, startling, crushing, shaking your body, assaulting your ears, making you tremble. That's how I imagine the voice of God, when he's mad, when he's angry, when he's got judgment to proclaim. And there were words in this thunder. There's words in the rumble, words from heaven speaking. John was going to write them down. He's told, no, don't do it. (laughs) We're not allowed to know what this judgment of God is. Was it God proclaiming his sovereignty? Was it him reclaiming the world? Was it him speaking about what the next awful things were going to happen on the unbelievers were? I don't know. I'm really curious, and even more so because John was forbidden to do it. I always want to find out what's going on when I'm not allowed to. Maybe you're not like me, but so yeah, this is the only time in the book of Revelation where someone is forbidden to write down something God said. So I really want to know, but we're not told. Okay, move along to the oath. Verse five, the mighty angel raises his right hand towards heaven, swears an oath by God himself. Shaky ground. He references God as the one who lives forever and ever, the one who created the land, the sea, the sky, and everything in them. And then he swears there will be no more delay in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. The mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So swearing an oath by God, does that sound like a good idea? No, No. in fact, Jesus in Matthew 5, which I told you to flag earlier, pretty much told us don't do it. He told people, humans, his disciples, don't swear by God, don't swear by anything. So if you want to go to Matthew 5 and follow me along, Matthew five thirty three to 37. Give you a second. Sorry. Okay. Matthew five thirty three to 37. Jesus teaches us, again, you've heard it said, it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white. White or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So if Jesus teaches something, it's pretty important, right? It's something we should listen to and obey. And I think this again, Um, references who you are. We, humans, shouldn't make oaths. We shouldn't swear by God. We shouldn't swear by anything, as Jesus taught. Because to swear an oath in biblical terms was to make a public declaration of a present or a future reality. It was to swear this is going to be or is the case. It was to call on a witness as a motivation and an incentive to enact that reality. I will do this or I am doing this. That was what swearing oath was about. There was a famous one in Judges where a fellow had returned from um, a victory that God had given him, and he swore an oath that the first thing that would come to meet him would be sacrificed to God. And the first thing that came to meet him on his way home was his daughter. So that's probably why it's a good idea not to swear oaths, because you're you really expected to keep them. Um, It's dangerous for us. It's dangerous for finite humans because we have limited knowledge of the present and almost no knowledge at all of the future. So we shouldn't go around making declarations of something that is going to be swearing oaths, especially by God, because we have very little power to actually bring about that reality. Jesus alludes to this impotence by saying we cannot even make one hair of our head white or black. We actually don't have any power at all, so we shouldn't be swearing oaths to enact reality. So why would we dare to swear an oath with God as his creation or as our witness? To swear an oath by God is to call upon the oldest and greatest power that exists as our certainty of achieving our oath. That's a very dangerous thing for a finite human. Angels, however, are not like us. This mighty angel has been given a specific task. He has been given the knowledge of a certain reality. God chooses at times to reveal more of the future to angels than he has to us, so that they can act as his heralds and spokespersons. This angel is able to swear by God as his witness, since God himself has told him this is going to happen. Go and tell John it's going to happen. So this mighty angel is not the first to swear an oath by him who lives forever and ever. I told you earlier, Daniel chapter 12. Did I? I think I did. Nope, I missed that one. Sorry. Um, Daniel chapter 12. If you can go there for a sec, just going to look at A similar instance where an angel swears by God. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, There was a man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river. He lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. So notice the similarities between these two encounters, if you like. Both times we have an angel swearing by God the one who lives forever. Both times, we have them swearing an oath, declaring a certain reality. This is going to happen. Both times, we see the angel dealing with a passage of time. In Daniel, he says, there shall be a time, times and half a time. In Revelation, he says, there shall be no more delay. Both times, there is a set condition to be fulfilled. In Daniel, the angel says, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. And in Revelation, the angel says, when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. So something has to happen before what I'm proclaiming comes to pass, is what they're saying. And both times, the angels refer to things being completed. Total certainty, no doubt, the simple knowledge that God has said it will happen, so it will. That's how they're able to swear by God. God himself has told them, this will happen, go and reveal it to my messenger, Daniel or John. So our mighty angel here in Revelation adds something to the description of God. Daniel's angel swears by him who lives forever, but Revelation's angel says, him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. This acknowledges God's sovereignty and ownership of these four things, if you like, the heavens, the sea, the land, and everything in them. God's already demonstrated this power and ownership in our first four trumpet judgments. If you, if you remember back early in Revelation, the first four trumpet judgments seriously affect the land, the sea, the sky, and everything in them. Heaven's being rolled up like a scroll, stars coming down, mountains falling into the ocean, water turning to poison, lots of people dying. God was demonstrating his ownership, his judgment, and his power over these parts of creation. So my guess is, and this is completely conjecture, my guess is that the seven thunders of God spoke of more great judgments to come, and the angel in his oath clarifies, his swearing an oath, he just clarifies that they're not going to be delayed. They will happen quickly. They will proceed fast. And the time of grace is ending. The mystery of God is about to be completed. Are you still with me? Am I going too fast? Am I going good? Okay, cool. All right. So, what is the mystery of God? Jesus? Any other thoughts? Good Sunday school answer, by the way, Nadine. <laughs> Anybody else want to have a stab? What, what is the mystery of God? Christ knew the hope of glory. Christ knew the hope of glory? Yep. What do you think, Al? What he said? Yep. Nobody else wants to have anything different? You don't have to. I'm just trying to get you talking. Okay, the word translated here as mystery is the Greek word mysterion, sometimes pronounced musterion. I'm not a Greek scholar, I just look up certain words when I really don't know what they mean. Um, some would say the word mystery is a bad translation, but the word secret or sacred secret would be a better translation, since a secret can be known, and a mystery sort of alludes to the idea that it's still not known. But anyway, however you translate it, the Greek word mysterion always refers to something that had at one time been hidden, but has now been revealed. It was used a lot in mining. If you're looking for um, metals and ores and gold and silver and stuff like that, it was a mystery before you found it, but there's no longer a mystery where it is. You dig there and you find more of it. So the word, the Greek word mysterion always refers to something that had at one time been hidden, but is now revealed or is being revealed. It was also used in legal inquiries about getting to the truth or the bottom of a matter. Um, And here, and right throughout the New Testament, the mystery of God, that phrase, always refers to a divine truth that was at one time hidden from people, but has now been revealed, either through prophets, apostles, or Jesus himself, and very, very rarely angels as well. So, Jesus speaks of the mystery of the kingdom of God in Mark 4.11, and he's talking, he's telling a bunch of parables about the kingdom, and he calls it the mystery of the kingdom of God. He says he is revealing it to the apostles. Paul uses this word, mysterion, 21 times throughout his epistles, always referring to the declaration of a spiritual truth revealed by God. In Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, he puts it very bluntly. Paul simply says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Spot on. Sunday School answer is usually right. The mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So here in Revelation, chapter 10, the mystery of God, the angel is referring to, that is about to be completed is Jesus Christ. His work is almost done. Remember when he left, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's been busy. He's still working. Um, Not only that, we know he intercedes for us before God himself. He's on our side and he prays for us. His mystery um, encompasses a few things. Obviously, the first thing was his death and resurrection, which atoned for us and gave us the chance of salvation. Um, That's part of Jesus' work. Another part is his eternal kingdom that is currently being constructed in our hearts, in heaven, in our dwelling place with him forever. And he will be established as a rightful ruler of his creation. And the third part, which people don't really like, of Jesus' work, his mystery, is his wrath and judgment on evil. It is going to come. It is part of the completed work of Christ. Evil and wicked has to be done away with for God to rule, for God to reign. None of you here would question that, but your friends who are going, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Well, King Jesus is doing something about that. He's preparing a place that's perfect, and he is preparing to pour out every bit of justice that all of the evil the world has ever seen deserves. He is going to completely obliterate evil and wickedness. That is part of his work. That is part of the mystery of God. Because the future is in God's hands, it's bright. He's in control. Despite all the terrible things that are going to happen as part of that judgment, this mystery is not a deep, dark secret. It's open. It's been revealed. Jesus has done his work on the cross. He's told us about what's coming. He's sent the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to all truth. And he's even told us what he's doing while he waits, while time goes on. So this is one way you could answer the question of why God allows suffering and evil. God is going to do something about it. He is just not ready yet. There is an appointed time, there is an hourglass, and the sand is running down. Eventually it will run out. Evil and wickedness and suffering will be done away with forever. This is a period of grace and mercy when Jesus is calling everyone that will to turn to him. Okay. Why did I bring a copy of Lord of the Rings to church? Some people might think that's a little bit of an evil book. My sister certainly does. She's convinced that anything with dragons in it is just of the devil. Because Revelation calls the dragon a devil at one point. Therefore, of the devil. Anyway, she's a sweet lady. Put on this world to teach me, Grace. Anyway, why did I bring a uh, a book? Um, This next bit, this weird bit about eating a scroll... Does anybody else find that a bit weird when you read Revelation? Like, why is John told to go and eat a scroll? (laughs) It destroys it. No one else can read it. Why doesn't he just read it? Why would he have to eat it? Uh, Become part of him. Oh, you're stealing my sermon. Um, Good job. So I brought along the Lord of the Rings because I once boasted to a good friend of mine, um, James Lowe, some of you know him from Rocky, that I read the Lord of the Rings once every year so I can know it well. And he went, oh, that's pretty rich. Have you read the Bible once every year? And I (laughs) Oops. And he goes, don't talk to me about that book. That's cool and all, but until you can say the same thing for your Bible, I don't care how much you read the Lord. All right, fine. So then I tried to do that and that was really hard, but I'm still working on it. I still read that once a year as well. Um, I know it really well. I've aced a lot of trivia questions about the Lord of the Rings. I have been able to quote page and chapter to my cousin when she challenged my knowledge of it. She doesn't do that anymore. (laughs) So what's the point? You are what you eat, what you spend time in, what you spend time digesting and soaking in and dwelling in, reading in, taking knowledge in. You become that. You understand it. You know it. It becomes a part of who you are. That's why he has to eat the scroll. So a couple of things to point out. In verse 8, John hears this voice from heaven again, commanding him, go take the scroll. He doesn't question it, he just goes and does it. I think we could all learn a little bit from that. <laughs> he simply obeys. He goes to the angel and he asks him for the scroll. The angel also has his orders and he tells John, take the scroll and eat it, warning him that it's going to be sour in the stomach and sweet in the mouth. So once again, John just obeys, as weird as it might seem to start munching down on a bit of parchment, which it probably was in his time, not not easy to digest paper, but um, yeah, some manky old bit of leather that's been dried out in department and written on. He starts chowing down on that and he gets it all in and it tastes sweet in his mouth and it goes down and is sour in his stomach. He obeys, even if it seems weird, even if it's odd. So I don't know about you guys, but this whole sweet and sour thing is pretty easy for me to understand because I have a gluten tolerance and there are an awful lot of yummy things made on gluten. I'm sure Kerry has the same frustration as I do. Um, So things that are yummy. Cheesecake, hot cross buns, cinnamon scrolls, chocolate mousse, and my all-time favourite, thanks to my German ancestors, strudel. Any kind of strudel. Apple strudel, blueberry strudel, banana strudel, pumpkin strudel. Yum. Absolutely loaded with gluten. It tastes very sweet in the mouth, but then... The tummy rots, the cramps, the foul smells, and the hours getting intimately acquainted with the toilet. Yes, I said that in a sermon. Sweet in the mouth, sour in the belly. It's not good for anyone. So that's a pretty bad analogy, since this scroll represents the Word of God. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're not told its contents, but we know that it came from God via this mighty angel, and that once John has consumed it, he is now ready to continue prophesying to many people's. The prophet Ezekiel had a similar experience. In Ezekiel three one to three, Ezekiel is told to eat a scroll that tasted sweet as honey, and that prepared him to go and speak to the people of Israel. So, what can we learn from this? Any thoughts? What did you say, Nadine? You should be careful with speaking. <laughs> Maybe I don't. That's not quite what I was going for, but all right. Anybody else want to have a stab? What can we learn from this eating a sweet scroll? Become acquainted with the word. Become acquainted with the word. Well, Gabe's on point. Adrian, what did you say? Oh, I think the judgment of God is bittersweet. So sweet in a way because it means we, as yeah, you said, evil and so forth is annihilated, but it's also bitter because often people are caught up in that. Caught up in that. Uh, they have so. That's right. Yeah. So. Again, I, didn't, I wasn't looking for a right answer. I just wanted to hear what you guys had to say. And I, I think it involves all of those things. Yeah, we've got to soak in the Word of God. Like Gabe said, we've just got to know it. We've got to learn from it. Um, it becomes part of who we are if we spend time. And that's why he has to eat it. It has to become part of him. It has to transform him. He has to digest it so that it becomes part of who he is. Same with us. We need to soak in God's Word until it nourishes our whole body. As we dine on the Word of God, it will nourish us, it will prepare us for obedience, just like John. We must chew on it. It's not enough to just read it and go, yep, cool, read that, read it once a year, no worries, I'm done, tick the box. You need to soak in it, you need to chew on it, spend time thinking about it, meditating on it, talking to others about it. What's your perspective on this? Even coming to church and listening to weirdos preach is helpful sometimes because it gives you a different perspective. So yeah, soak in the Word, savour it. Reading the word without obeying it and applying it to your life is like trying to eat something without chewing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> Try and eat something without chewing. You might get a few soft things down, but the vast majority of things that we eat need to be chewed. They need to be spent time eating them, you know, working on them down, <laughs> savoring them, digesting them. So... Some of it is sour. Some of it is bitter. The judgments of God on sin are harsh. They're deserved a million times over, but they're harsh because there are people we love that get caught up in that. People that don't repent, people that flatly refuse. You can give them the best arguments in the world why God's going to do something about wickedness and sin and suffering, and they'll still say, "Uh uh-uh, don't care. Going to do life my way. And that's going to be bitter for them. That's going to be really hard. They're going to deserve it, But the end of man apart from God is terrifying. And I don't want any of my non-Christian friends to end up there. Had the great opportunity yesterday of going down to Brisbane um, to a friend of mine who's having an engagement party. Haven't seen him for years and he'd sort of gotten a lot of our mates from uni back together. A lot of them are non-Christians and there were some very interesting people at this party. There was several um, homosexual couples which made things interesting. And there's also one person there who was involved with two people at the same time, which was interesting, um, hearing about how they do life. And I thought, I wonder what Jesus would have done in this situation. Would he have run for the hills? Or would he have sat with the tax collectors and told them the good news? And so, yeah, Sarah and I went and we had a good time catching up with people. they were really curious about what we did for work because they're all uni-educated professionals earning lots of money and living in Brisbane and buying houses. And here we are, we're from Toowoomba, we talk to uni students. (laughs) So yeah, that was interesting. We got lots of chances to share what we do and why. And they were interested. Life has started to throw some nasty things their way. And they're realizing maybe they actually don't have all the answers. Maybe they do need something bigger. So that was was fun. It was good. It was also pretty hard because I felt like, you know, I love these guys. I went to uni with them. I'd love to see them in heaven. And I really don't want to see them in hell. But sometimes I just don't know how to reach them. The plan of salvation is sweet, the hope of heaven is sweet, the gospel of Jesus is sweet, but the end of man apart from God is terrifying. So in summary, we have a mighty angel with some of the aspects of deity, clearly acting on behalf of God as he plants his feet on the earth and the sea, reclaiming them for the Almighty. He holds an open scroll, he speaks in a mighty roar. God thunders from heaven but forbids John to write down the words he says. The angel swears by God himself he'll no longer delay. Grace is ending, judgment is coming, time is running out. The mystery of God is about to be accomplished, completed. God is going to set all things right at last. This is why I love Revelation. Ultimately, it can always be summed up in the two same sentences that I've said before. God wins, get on his team. So yeah, that's the hope there is in it for me. God's going to set all things right at last. John is commanded to take the scroll and eat it. He unquestioningly obeys, finding it both sweet and sour. He is then commissioned to continue this prophecy over many people. So applications to finish. Three applications. Number one, God is all powerful, fully in control. This is right through revelation. I've said it before. Don't mistake this time grace and mercy for inaction or impotence. And don't let your non-Christian friends either explain to them. This is what's going on. God is coming back and he's coming back mad. (laughs) He's angrier than you are about the injustice that's going on. And he is going to do something about it. You don't want to be on the wrong side of him when he does that. So he is fully in control. This is a future reality that angels are willing to swear on. We need to be on God's team and we don't need to fear anything else. Application number two, devour the word of God. Better than I devoured that apple. Get into it. Chew it. Get it into you. Let it transform you. Change who you are. You are what you eat, so feed on the word of God. And number three, very simple one, obey like John. If God says do it, do it. If he says don't, don't. The simple faith that God is in total control leads to this unquestioning obedience. Knowing God through his word gives you the courage to enact this obedience. That's it. Thanks for having me.